everyone, and welcome to the fourth of our CSF podcasts, which are focusing specifically on psoriatic arthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis, as well as our AXPAR podcasts. And we'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research, publications in the field of psoriatic arthritis, and to use for grand rounds, to use for lectures, for use for various talks around the place. My name's Peter Nash. I'm Professor of uh, Rheumatology School of Medicine, Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane. And joining me today is Laura Coates, Associate Professor at NIHR Clinical Scientist and Senior Clinical Research Fellow at the Oxford Psoriatic Arthritis Centre, and Professor Frank Behrens, Medical Director at the Goethe University. Welcome, Frank, and welcome, Laura. I'm handing over to you, Frank, to talk about the very first paper that we're going to discuss. There'll be secukinumab-focused papers on malignancy, a meta-analysis, and on JAK inhibition. Over to you, Frank. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Thanks so much. So I think it's not specifically only PSA when, when later on we're talking about JAK safety and we have combined data on different indications. Uh, but nevertheless, I think safety is of importance for all our rheumatic patients. And uh, yeah, so papers we'll be covering in today's topical discussion highlight two interesting areas of the uh, modern PSA therapeutic landscape. The first of the publications we'll be discussing pertains of the use of secokinumab in specific patient population, maybe a patient population which reflects what we see in daily practice more often than what we see in, in clinical trials and randomized clinical trials, uh, our oligoarticular PSA population. So not too many patients, but still a high disease burden and what to do. And then we will go on to expand upon the latest in the evolving story began by oral surveillance. I don't know whether you want to hear oral surveillance anymore, but um, of course we have to try to understand whether this is reflecting what is of importance for our treatment decision in daily practice, or is this just an, let's say, artificial outcome in a very specific study design in a very specific dedicated population, maybe, which is irrelevant to us. And we will discuss a little bit a combined analysis of several data of randomized clinical trials of several check inhibitors with respect to malignancies and the risk compared to other treatments. So, yeah, Laura, it's up to you to start with IL-17. Yeah, so on to our first paper. Uh, so this paper is looking at the inhibition of interleukin-17 with secukinumab in patients who have oligoarticular psoriatic arthritis. And, and as you said, Frank, oligoarticular PSA is a significant proportion of the disease that we see in clinic. Um, it presents with quite similar clinical features, enthesitis, dactylitis, skin disease, um, and actually can be just as high a burden as polyarticular PSA, even though patients have a lower number of joints involved. Some of my patients with the most tricky disease that I treat have oligoarticular disease. But it's really a group that haven't been particularly well studied. They're often not included in clinical trials. The clinical trials are focusing on very high levels of swollen and tender joint counts, um, not necessarily as an inclusion criteria. So typically the inclusion criteria is three joints in most of the trials, occasionally five. But actually the patients that end up going into those studies have joint counts of more like 20 tender and 10 swollen. So there's really a lack of evidence for how we treat people with psoriatic arthritis who have this oligoarticular pattern. So in this analysis, we aim to look at the efficacy of secukinumab in patients with oligoarticular disease. 
And that's tricky to do. This is not a dedicated study. It's taking patients from existing secukinumab trials and trying to bring them together. So as I mentioned, most of those trials require three tender and three swollen joints. So you do get a small population in those studies who have three or four joints involved, um, but not five or more. Um, so they were pulled out of the future two to five trials, and there were 48 patients from those studies who had low levels of joints involved. And then obviously Sekakinmab also did the Maximize trial, which was the axial PSA trial, looking at the efficacy of Sekakinmab in patients with axial PSA. And in that study, there were 36 patients who had axial disease, but also had oligoarticular peripheral psoriatic arthritis as well. So those two groups were combined, obviously all meeting CASPAR criteria and having a diagnosis of PSA and having less than five joints involved. And I think perhaps unsurprisingly, secukinumab worked well. We don't really believe that the oligoarticular patients have a very different underlying pathogenesis to the polyarthritis patients. Um, it makes sense that they're likely to respond to the same treatments. And in fact, if we look in registry data, often oligoarthritis patients are treated in the real world with biologics. Um, but it's reassuring here that we did see good responses in terms of joint outcomes. So this was using the disease activity and PSA score, the DAPSA, uh, and they looked at DAPSA responses like DAPSA 50 or 75, and also low levels of disease. Um, so DAPSA low disease and DAPSA remission. And those responses look good, both with the 300 and the 150 milligram doses uh, and significantly better than placebo, as you'd expect. And those improvements seem to be sustained um, out to week 52 in the follow up for the studies. And that was associated with greater improvements in patient reported outcomes as well. So better outcomes in terms of fatigue, patient global and patient pain. Um, and it seemed that maybe there was a slightly better improvement in the higher dose, in the 300 milligram dose compared to the 150 dose. But obviously, this study is really underpowered to be able to look at differences between active treatment groups. We saw that patients on that higher 300 milligram dose uh, were more likely to achieve all of the different components of MDA compared to placebo. So we're seeing benefits not just in the joints, but also in the skin uh, and with enthesitis as well. In terms of predicting outcome, um, I think perhaps unsurprisingly, um, patients who were younger um, were more likely to achieve better outcomes. Patients who had lower levels of baseline disease activity were more likely to hit remission type criteria. So they've got less um, improvement to make to hit those remission criteria. And in keeping with a lot of studies, um, the male patients did better as well compared to the women. Um, and generally speaking, the safety profile looked very similar uh, as it had done in the original trials in Future and Maximize. So I think we've got um, initial data, admittedly from a post hoc study. This isn't a dedicated oligoarticular study, but shows that secukinumab does improve disease activity, um, that it's associated with better PRO outcomes as well. Um, and that maybe that higher 300 milligram dose looks a little bit better for some of the, uh, the better efficacy outcomes like low disease activity and remission. 
So I mean, here in the UK, we definitely have an issue with accessing these medications because the trials require three tender and three swollen joints. That's our criteria to get biologics for reimbursement. So we really struggle to treat patients with less than three joints. But I wonder, do, do you guys have a bit more experience in clinical practice and um, being able to treat the oligoarticular patients? Well, it's it's tough for us because um, they expect 20 swollen joints for us. <laughs> and and one of the things that we've noticed over time, and this was based on the baseline demographics of the very original Enbrel study where they had 20 swollen joints, and the government said, we're not having you get around the requirement for RA, and just because there's a rash, you can, you can squeeze RA people into PSA. So there was some politics behind it. But one of the interesting things is how the swollen joint count has dropped over time. Yeah. From a baseline of 20, it's now down to a baseline of 10. Mm. I wonder why that is, Laura. And I was going to ask you about gender because, again, gender rears its ugly head and women don't respond as well as men. So can you give us your thoughts about why that might be? Yeah, so I think in, in most studies and in this study, it's hitting the remission targets that's the issue for women. Um, so if you look, there's some quite nice data from the Swedish registry, which shows that women start with higher levels of disease activity and end with higher levels of disease activity. But actually, their improvement isn't that different. They do show a kind of similar response, but it's much harder for them to hit those kind of remission level outcomes. Um, and I think that's definitely multifactorial. There's a big study going forward led by Leahy Edda um, from Toronto trying to look at this in more detail because all of the data that we have is post-hoc analyses from trials mostly. Um, we haven't looked specifically at the impact of uh, gender, at how that impacts on different outcome measures, potential role of hormones. Um, there's a lot of differences that we need to kind of pull apart to understand that a bit better, I think. And Frank, can you tell us, DAPSA is very much a Viennese construct originally, are people actually doing it in the clinic? Are you guys doing DAPSA? Is it a clinical trial measure? What disease activity measure do Europeans use? So I think DAPSA is a very easy to do and feasible measure at all in clinics. So you just count joints and sum it up. Um, that's very easy. But the question is whether this is sufficient to reflect a disease burden. And of course, um, it's challenging. So you can say and argue, I'm a rheumatologist and my main focus is arthritis. And if so, then DAPSA reflects what you wanted to treat. If you say psoriatic arthritis is more a psoriatic disease and I want to cover all the components, at least I want to reflect it in my disease measurement. It doesn't mean that I have to treat all of them, but to, to, um, yeah, to capture what has happened with my patients and of course, uh, other criteria may be uh, in favor. And and of course, um, um, if, if you look for this oligoarthritis and, and your criteria to get access to these kind of therapy, it's a little bit, it's crazy to be honest, because we, we want to achieve a target. We do a treat to target. So is there any different right to get to your target if you have 10 swollen joints compared to someone who has three? So, um, so if we believe that a treatment target has to be achieved by our treatment approaches, and it doesn't matter what the, uh, uh, the baseline disease activity it is, it is the not MDA, it's not our treatment target, for example. And if it's not, I have to bring the patient to the target I want to, want to achieve. So how important is it? It's not. And then we have other data 
showing that enterocytes might have a higher impact on disease burden compared to five versus 10 joints. So um, that's the challenges we have to deal with. And I think as long as we didn't achieve a target, we have to treat, full stop, uh, independent whether it's three or five or one or whatever. Um, and I think we can learn something from the derms. So they have, uh, they now immediately start with IL-17 or IL-23, despite the fact that some will achieve a PASI 90 with uh, a TNF. But they say, why should I spend too much time uh, on a treatment where the probability to achieve what I wanted to achieve is so much lower than, than uh, with the others? And, and I think the goal must be to achieve the target. And if it's not already achieved, to expand the treatment approach and, and to do it. The two things I was going to ask you, Laurie, you've published on this axial disease with some peripheral arthritis. Do you think that is the same or different to PSA? Is it a is it a construct that came out of the axial docs who sit in a back pain clinic? And the other thing I noticed from that paper you showed, there really was a dose response nearly at every level from 300 to 150. And I think it's the reason why we so popularly use 300 because we can and there's no safety penalty. So the axial plus peripheral and the comment on dose, please. Yeah, so I think there's a big question around axial PSA and how you define that. And I think um, all of the studies that have tried to bring together a homogeneous group have actually brought together quite a mixed bag of different patients. We've got patients who meet modified New York criteria, but also meet Caspar criteria. So there's an argument about whether they're AS with peripheral arthritis and psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis um, with um, significant changes on their x-ray. Um, there was some quite nice work um, done by the Novartis Sekikinumab teams using machine learning to try and start with the group from Maximize and then kind of sort them into groups without any pre-specified hypothesis. And you do get kind of different patterns of disease in terms of the number of joints involved, um, level of enthesitis, level of skin disease, um, and those patients, at least in proportion, are subtly different to the AXPAR population. So I think there's still definitely a question around axial disease. Um, again, there is a study ongoing uh, between GRAPA and ASAS for the AXIS study, which is trying to study this group in more detail. So I think hopefully in the future, we will end up with better criteria to try and define this so that we can study them better. That should hopefully come out of the study. And we need to think about outcome measures because the clinical outcome measures for axial disease are so impacted by peripheral disease as well. Um, you know, we see improvements in BASDIs, um, regardless or not of whether the drug works for axial disease and regardless or not of whether the patient has axial disease. Um, so we need specific measures and something that we can use that can really differentiate between the spine and the other symptoms. And at the moment, I think we're reliant on MRI for that. Um, in terms of the doses, um, yeah, so obviously this is this is underpowered to be able to compare active treatment doses. It's pretty small sample size from two different studies with quite different inclusion criteria kind of mishmashed together. So I would have a little bit of caution on how much you can draw from this study in particular. But I would agree in terms of the safety profile, the 300 milligram dose doesn't have um, an obvious differential impact above the 150. It's obviously the standard dose that's used in dermatology as well. Um, so we've certainly had some patients where we have deliberately gone for the higher dose when they've had significant enthesitis or other issues 
and we've just wanted to maximise the chance of responding. Like Frank's saying, you know, dermatologists are going for newer mode of action drugs because they are more efficacious. If we can give a higher dose, which potentially has better efficacy with no real safety downside, that then it seems sensible to try for that. I think it depends a little bit where your reimbursement comes in. So we um, struggle to get permission to go from 150 to 300. Um, that's more of a fight if we've started at the lower dose first. We we find it easier to get away with going for 300 milligrams first. And we can always drop the dose if we want to later on. Um, so if we're not sure, um, or if it's a patient with significant enthesitis or other issues, we'll try and go for the higher dose. Um, it depends a little bit how eagle-eyed our pharmacists are. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, let's move on. Frank, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about Mark Russell's paper? which was yeah. published in R&D Open. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, again, I, I think it's always a challenge after you have a, a, a presentation on efficacy to talk about safety um, because often safety is a little bit boring, but I think everybody knows that it's an ongoing story about the safety of check inhibitors and all the warnings uh, we got from a class effect, et cetera. So, um, and in the next paper uh, titled Check Inhibitors and the Risk of Malignancies and Meta-Analyses Across Disease Indications, uh, by Mark Russell, as you mentioned, um, is focusing on a huge number of patient years to understand and also doing a meta-analysis to compare to other treatment approaches, with, which is of importance. So, um, yeah, you all know that uh, FDA has asked for a post-marketing surveillance study to evaluate safety, um, including the risk of malignancies, and uh, Pfizer was asked to perform these so-called oral surveillance study as an open label, a randomized clinical trial comparing tofacitinib with TNF inhibitors in uh, patients with at least 50 years of age with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and the, the study was designed for a non-inferiority uh, for malignancies and MACE. And this non-inferiority criterion wasn't met by TOFA compared to TNF. So during median follow-up of four years, a higher incidence of uh, adjudicated malignancies, excluding non-melanoma skin cancers, was observed with combined TOFA doses than uh, with TNF inhibitors. And similarly, non-melanoma skin cancer incidence was higher with TOFA than TNF. So it, it still remains unclear, however, what the result of oral surveillance trial are or whether this is generalizable uh, to other check inhibitors, other diseases, the whole population we are treating, or is this just artificial design uh, of the study? So, and the objective of this uh, publication of this study was to estimate the association of check inhibitors with the incidence of malignancy compared with placebo, TNF, and mesotraxate in a, in a uh, meta-analysis approach. So the impressive uh, aspect of this manuscript are the numbers. So we have 62 randomized clinical trials included. Uh, we have, uh, in addition, 16 long-term follow-up studies. We have uh, overall more than 80,000 patient years of exposure to check inhibitor. It's TOFA with more than 40,000 patient years, Bari with roughly 17,000 patient years, UPA with 11,000 patient years, Filgo with 10,000 patient years, and uh, Perficitinib with 2,200 patient years. And across all study groups of eligible RCTs, there were 497 malignancy, uh, malignancy events overall, corresponding to an incidence rate of 1.15 cancers per 100 patient years of exposure of the individual product. Though so there were 1,189 malignancy events across combined RCTs and 
long-term observation studies with an incidence rate of 1.26 cancers per 100 patient years. So that's how it is with the chat. And now try to compare it to other mode of actions. And uh, a very important mode of action is placebo. So in these network meta to understand the real uh, uh, incidence of these events in a non-treated patient population, patient population, not in the health, it's in the patient population. So looking for the malignancies in, in the placebo group, in the network meta-analysis of these RCTs, there was no significant differences in the risk of all malignancies, including non-melanoma skin cancer between CHAC inhibitors and placebo. Comparable findings were observed from network meta-analysis of all malignancies, excluding non-melanoma skin cancer um, and for non-melanoma skin cancer only. So, um, and similar in the network meta-analysis of combined randomized trials and long-term observation data, there was no significant difference in malignancies risk between CHACs and placebo for all malignancies, including non-melanoma skin cancer and all malignancies, excluding non-melanoma skin cancers. In the sensitivity analysis, the those individual studies in turn made no substantial differences to these estimates. So, and now is the interesting aspect to mimic a little bit our surveillance. Of course, you can't mimic it based on the inclusion criteria. These are typical pivotal randomized clinical trials and not see selection population in, in surveillance, but if you malignancies, if compare the malignancy risk in CHAC with TNF, in this network meta-analysis of RCTs, CHAC inhibitors associated with a significantly higher incidence of all malignancies, including non-melanoma skin cancer, compared with TNF. Keep in mind, not compared to placebo, but to keep uh, in comparison to TNF. The incidence of malignancies, including non-melanoma skin cancer, was higher with CHAC inhibitors than TNF, but uh, with a confidence interval that crossed the one. So non-melanoma skin incidence was significantly higher with CHACs than with TNF. And uh, in these meta-analyses combining RCTs and long-term follow-up data, um, the incidence of malignancies was higher with CHAC than with TNF inhibitor for all malignancies, all malignancies excluding non-melanoma skin cancer and for non-melanoma skin cancer only. And the sensitivity analyses that exclude individual studies demonstrated the large influence of one study, the oral surveillance. So malignancy risk comparing CHAC inhibitor now with a conventional DMARC and the most common used product, methotrexate. So we see no difference to placebo, a difference to TNF, and what's about methotrexate comparing to CHAC. When comparing CHAC with methotrexate in this network meta-analysis of RCTs, no significant differences at the risk of all malignancies, including non-melanoma skin cancer was seen. It's the same if you include a long-term observation study. Um, there was, however, a small number of studies uh, which resulted in a wide confidence interval for analysis for malignancies, including non-melanoma skin cancer. So other comparisons. So if you look for these analyses specifically in the randomized clinical trials, whether TNF is associated with a lower incidence of all malignancies compared with placebo, not to check. Then this came up. Then in the analysis, the incidence of malignancy with TNF was numerically lower than placebo, but not significantly. No statistically significant association were found for background characteristics like age, sex, treatment, uh, um, et cetera. In CHAC inhibitors versus placebo, CHAC versus TNF, or CHAC versus mesotraxate comparisons. So 
that's an interesting uh, aspect which we can found and it can conclude it as follows. So checks were associated with a higher incidence of malignancies compared to TNF, but not compared with placebo or methotrexate. The association was driven primarily by the results of one large study, the oral surveillance, and importantly, malignancies were rare events anyway. Keep in mind, 497 in 82,000 patient years across all treatment groups. Yeah, that's that's a meta-analysis, but I think there are some caveats with this analysis about comparison to placebo is part of the same randomized trials. Comparison to TNF is often uh, uh, an only network meta-analysis, but nevertheless, um, new data uh, from very large samples. So thank you for analysing a very complicated study. What would you suggest a take-home message for the rheumatologist, the clinician, Frank? What what should they make of this? Yeah, if know, we one, conclude one, yeah. one if, study if, yeah, in RA yeah. and it's all jacks and all diseases and you know lung cancer yeah. drove a lot of the difference and even in oral surveillance, I think the TOFAR arm had forty more smokers and the TNFs arm had sixty less ever smokers and both smoking drove lung cancer and mate. So. What kind of take-home message, Frank? Yeah. So if we conclude, and then it adds a little bit to the story about is there any preventive or positive effect of a TNF instead of having a negative effect of check? I think we have already discussed this widely with the, with the major cardiovascular events uh, that we often don't see any difference to, to other drugs. And maybe if you compare... Uh, doing an oral surveillance uh, with methotrexate as a comparator compared to, to TNFs, then maybe a, a non-inferiority was easily met. I don't know. And we don't discuss about the potential risk of methotrexate. We now discuss it of the check inhibitors. And the real uh, individual risk is very, very low at all. So, uh, But nevertheless, if you want to understand better, I think it's worth to make this analysis. How can you um, extrapolate for the individual risk for your patient sitting in your office in front of you, that's a challenge because this is a meta-analysis of large numbers of huge patient cohorts with very sophisticated statistic methods and in your practice you, you're sitting in front of one patient and no chance to make a meta-analysis and you have to make a decision and I think it, 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 it will not change too much so in case there's good reasons to prescribe a check inhibitor and, you did, and this is not a patient uh, with a very specific high risk for any of malignancies or cardiovascular events and, and no uh, events in the past. Uh, and there are good reasons to prescribe them. I think it's absolutely uh, um, acceptable to prescribe based on the advantages of an oral therapy with a robust effect uh, size. That sets the point. Laurie, your thoughts? What, 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 how do you think that clinicians should look at these results where non-melanoma skin cancer drove a lot of the difference and we understand there's a signal and all our patients in the skin cancer capital of the world get a yearly skin check as in any case what do you think yes i think like frank says this is hard isn't it because it's a relatively rare risk but it's a serious risk and that's hard for us to explain to patients it's hard for patients to understand and take on board um, and i think there's a, still a lot of question about the other biologics and where the risks lie um, you know, we, there was obviously a massive worry about TNF inhibitors right at the beginning because they were tumor necrosis inhibitors. Um, and so there was all sorts of worry. There were, you know, the early studies which showed a higher risk 
probably driven actually by their rheumatoid disease um, and the fact that that was driving the malignancy risk rather than the drug. Um, so I think it's really, really difficult to pull this apart. I think we've got to be open with patients about risks and try and discuss this better. We've got to try and explain it and put it into context. As Frank says, this is pretty small numbers in terms of patient years. But if you're the patient that gets the cancer, that's not going to make you feel any better. Um, you're still going to be struggling with that um, and then juggling, managing the arthritis um, alongside the cancer as well. So I think it is very tricky and it's tricky to explain. It's something we need to work on in terms of education for patients. But I think it's it's something that we bring into our um, decision making algorithms. And, you know, very rarely is there one right drug for each person in front of us in clinic. It is a balance of risk and benefits. If somebody has very severe skin, we're maybe going to go for an IL-17 or an IL-23. Um, in the JAK inhibitors, certainly the patients where I've used them most commonly at the moment has been patients with axial disease, where we don't have that many options and we don't have any effective oral, oral options. So that's a really big benefit to have an additional drug that works in axial disease. Um, and in those with an overlap with inflammatory bowel disease, where again, we've got efficacy for JAK inhibitors in inflammatory bowel disease, and we can't use IL-17 inhibitors. Um, so I think it's it's just picking the right person, trying to explain that risk, um, which I think we probably could work on and provide some tools to help people with, um, and bringing that discussion into the clinic for that for that individual patient in front of you. Very difficult, isn't it? So, Frank, do you think PSA is the same risk as RA patients? And can you think of a mechanism of action why there should be a malignant signal? Um, I think PSA, we had in the past some signals of skin cancer, non-melanoma skin cancer, but also specifically in the past, if they had a lot of PUVA uh, and light therapy plus cyclosporin and then a biologic, and it seems that there is a specific risk based on the UV uh, uh, treatment approaches in the past. So yes, I think for skin cancer, um, there is a risk for our PSA patients specifically, which might differ, but definitely not lower than uh, in the PSA. So as you mentioned, Peter, uh, annual skin skin check should be performed anyway, independent what kind of mode of action is used. So for other cancers, I think we have uh, normally younger population, not so many comorbid conditions in PSA compared to a rheumatoid um, arthritis. So therefore, we can estimate that the risk might be lower, despite the fact that we know that comorbid conditions like diabetes and other diseases are more frequent in PSA compared to RA, despite the fact that steroid use is lower. Though, I, finally, with skin cancer, I would say definitely we have a risk in our PSA population. And then the next question is whether there is a specific mode of action which can explain whether there is a risk. So again, this data didn't prove that there is a risk compared to placebo. Uh, there's just the differences compared to TNF inhibitors. Um, and and uh, therefore, um, it's the same like methotrexate, it's the same like placebo. So uh, you can also ask me whether I have a clear explanation why cancer has happened in placebo-treated patients um, based on the mode of action of placebo. And of course, we can't. Um, I think there's no specific um, a clear explanation and also no explanation whether the uh, preferentiality regarding check one or three or two or whatever makes any difference. 
And very interesting. Hey, I've, I've seen some TOFA and, <clears throat> and NK cell data, and I can't recall seeing it with the other jacks that the NK cells drop, mm. but all hypothesis. So thank you very much for um, a very interesting uh, presentation, both of you. Thank you for joining us for this PSA podcast brought to you by Cytokine Signaling Forum. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to read more about what we've discussed today, head to cytokinesignaling.com. You'll find the publications. You'll find detailed summary slides of each of the papers. And I again thank uh, Laura and Frank very much for your time. Greatly appreciate your insights into these two interesting papers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.